We are all born artists and creators, yet slowly but surely our false programming from society, culture, and family takes us down a different path. I was born a spiritual gangster, and the awakened dad is the journey back to myself. My name is Brent Hurd, and I've taken the journey of achieving what I thought was success and found myself lying on an operating table facing the edge of life. My mission is to help as many of us reclaim who it is that we truly are and help 100 million children live out their greatest lives. Join me each Thursday in listening to the stories of those who have made it back to themselves and lived a life of fulfillment and joy. Welcome, Paul Ollinger, a man I have known for quite some time who has the same set of encyclopedias that I grew up with. Those are not those are not the actual encyclopedias from my parents. But after my parents died, the one thing I regret not getting from their house, it was actually before they died, it was when we downsized them. The one thing that I wanted in retrospect was the set of encyclopedias, the 1975 World Book Encyclopedias. Because it was like the one thing yeah. that d- just represented so much about what's changed in the world mm-hmm. since we were kids, right? Like that volume of books right there mm. sat on the small two, two-level bookshelf in our foyer in our home in suburban Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And it represented all the knowledge in the world. Yeah. That was all you could, that was as much as you could possibly know. Yeah. Was A through Z of the World Book Encyclopedia. Maybe you'd get Britannica too if your parents were super fancy. And it (laughs) makes me think that some, at some point in 1976, some encyclopedia salesman knocked on our door and sold my dad those books. At some point, when they went to dinner with friends, they discussed, do you guys have a set of encyclopedias? Which one did you get and how much did you pay for it? Think about it. That was a big purchase back yeah, then. Yeah. They might have, my dad certainly paid cash for those because he didn't finance uh, anything. But it was a regular thing for yeah. people to, to write a monthly check yeah. to pay off their World Book Encyclopedia. Yeah, that's a good point. And the question I have is, did you spend any time in those encyclopedias? As a kid? Yeah. For sure. You did? Oh yeah. yeah. I remember like when we were going to the library in school, like the, the, the big driver once you got to like fourth grade was let's see if there's a national geographic and see if there's any boobs that we can. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you then, would look up, you would go, would you go to, what, what letter would you go to? Would you go to B or would you go well, to? Well, this would be national geographic. What, what wasn't, was oh, like the women in Africa. Yes. The native women that didn't wear tops. That's right. And then there was the <laughs> Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition that would sneak its way into the school library and Cheryl Teague's wearing a fishnet. Well, I'll tell you. Is those, this what enlightened dads talk about? This. So, Paul, welcome to the Awakened Dad. Awakened Dad. The Awakened Dad. The Awakened Dad. I'm happy to be here. So, Paul, we have known each other quite some time. Mm-hmm. Let's let's rewind that a little bit. Let's, let's do it. Let's, let's do, do, it. do a little nostalgia. Mm. Where did we first meet? Surely at Yahoo. In 2000. Some sales conference or something. or Yeah, yeah. So 2001, yeah. Yahoo. We sure. were young salesmen. Yeah. We were knocking on doors. We had big quotas. Selling, encyc- managers. selling encyclopedias. We had managers who were all over us for the number. That's right. And then this very interesting thing happened. We had a sales conference in Monterey, California. Yeah. Was it Monterey? 
You talking about when I did comedy for yeah, the first time? Yeah. That was at the Scotts is in Scottsdale. Okay. We had It was a, at a crappy resort in Scottsdale. And my in-laws live in Scottsdale. And I didn't know my in-laws at the time. Yeah. I was yet to become an honest man. You're a great. You're going to be a good interview, by but the way. I, thank you. Yeah. I, but I go back to Scottsdale often, and I we drive past that crappy resort where yeah. Yahoo had their. What 2000, was the name of it? What was the name of it? It's like the yeah. Scottsdale Resort and Conference Center or something. Yeah. It's a poor man's desert resort. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a conference center. It wasn't the, poor, but when we went, it was it was quite nice. It was always it was man. like I remember like La Quinta in the, the resort that we've had a couple of sales conferences at. La Quinta in, uh, where is that's in uh, Desert Springs, Palm Springs? Oh, yeah, Palm Springs. That yeah, place is a right. lot nicer. Anyway, look, hey, 2003, post-recession, we are lucky we had a sales conference at all. Yeah, you're right. And so, so yeah, that was the first time I did, I performed stand-up comedy at the Yahoo Sales Conference. But hold on, let me, I got about, let me back this up. Sure, Okay. Back it up. So, listen, you're a sales guy mm -hmm. at this really cool company. It is a hot company in the space. And all of a sudden... You're asked to perform comedy in front of the entire organization. Yeah. Right? In front of the whole sales organization. Who came to you and who asked you this question? So the way it happened was that, so Winda Harris-Millard, who was our head of sales, she came out west. She spent a day with me. I was given the opportunity to take her around my accounts in Northern California. So we met with the, like Visa and Intel and mm. I don't know, a couple of other people. And so, so that day I got to know her a little bit and it came out, somehow she heard that I was doing stand-up comedy, mm -hmm. doing open mics and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I had taken stand-up comedy courses. And so she said, you've been holding out on me and why don't you do it at this, we had these Pebble Beach events where we take clients out to Pebble Beach. And so she said, why don't you do five minutes in front of Tom Dreesen, who's this legendary comedian mm -hmm. at this Pebble Beach event in front of it was probably 30 Yahoo employees and a bunch of clients. Mm -hmm. And I told a few jokes and she said, you're doing this at the national sales conference in a few months. And that's how it started. So by the way, can, can we just rewind for a minute? When you would go out with your executives on the road and you would prepare and you would have Wenda who was like mm -hmm. this big, she was, she ran the show, right? Oh, she was no joke. She was no joke. And she was hardcore. Like she yeah. did not play games. Yeah. You, you knew when she was in the room, like it was all business. So when she's out with you for a day, like are you nervous the, the, going into that day? Are you up really early? Do you work out before? What's the, <laughs> what? Give me the give me. How do you get prepared for a day with her? Because you I want to impress the big boss, that I, whole thing. I don't. I don't remember, but I do remember being pretty nervous and holding back and being on my p's and q's. Where later, when you, it's so funny because I, I think this is you're tapping into something that's so important to me that I really felt. After doing stand-up comedy at Yahoo, I felt like I could be myself. And I think the ability to be yourself mm. in any work organization is absolutely critical to mm. your long-term health and enjoyment of a job. Mm. And in circumstances in my career where I have not been able to be myself, I have been completely miserable and I quit way too early. <laughs> okay, here we go. And I think it plays right into your the whole concept of awakened dad and awakened professional and all that stuff. I mean, just operating as who you are in the world, because the hardest thing is to really be yourself. It's the most important thing. And the hardest. It, it is hard. It's, Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard for people to be who you truly are all day, every day? 
Well, I think you have to find environments that allow you to be yourself. That allow, Being yourself doesn't mean you have to say every single thing that comes into your mind. Mm-hmm. But being in an environment where you feel like you can't say the things that are important to you is dispiriting and emotionally crushing. And so I think as organizations, corporations, universities, government entities, as everything becomes more political, the price that we're paying for this is people feeling that they have to keep their mouth shut and not be who they are, that they have to be one person at work and another person at home. Yeah. And the more that happens, the more people will resent not being able to represent who they are. God, that is so fascinating, man. I, 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 I actually never put those things together with you in the sense of that was actually the moment for you that where you really just began to show up as yourself. Every Because once you show up as yourself at work, you're sure as hell showing up as yourself everywhere else in your life. I think that it's a lot easier to do that, yeah. The, you're talking about the, the, the day I did comedy? Yeah, the day you did comedy in front of that her. Changed, that, changed my, that, changed, well, th- that changed my entire trajectory yeah, at Yahoo. totally. We came in as part of the launch.com acquisition in, I think, 2000, and then we were integrated in early 2002. This is post-9-11. This mm-hmm. is post-dot-com bubble. Yahoo had gone from the biggest highest flying internet company to being eviscerated. Mm. I think they cut 50% of their employees and there was a lot of sort of everybody looking around. And it was funny. I remember when we got there, you'd ask people, when did you start? And the answer to that question was either I'm a multimillionaire Mm -hmm. or my options are priced at about 10x. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Underwater. My options are so underwater, I'm never going to make any money. That's right. And, And so everybody felt a little bit, it was a weird place to go into. And then over the next year or so, Wenda came in, Dan Rosenzweig mm-hmm. came in and Greg came in and you had, and I'm not, I don't have the timing right, but you, you had a, yeah. a stable of really solid professionals that came in. Terry Semmel came in started turning this organization around. Yep. Attitudes started getting really great. People who, I remember when Jerry Yang would walk into the room and people would literally stand up and cheer standing ovations every time jerry and david would walk into the room and i was like well he didn't make me a millionaire i appreciate him i love the but but i don't have that Mm -hmm. same connection but over time the company turned into from my span there 01 to 05 it turned into this really cool organization that i was very proud to be a part of great people a lot of fun a big challenge to go and try and prove that we had something that there was a marketing that there was that, that that it was possible to market your products in a profitable way on the internet, blah blah blah. But in terms of after doing stand up comedy in front of that that night at sales conference, the day after, I was getting emails from people I I, I never met. Sue Decker, the CFO of the company. Wow. She didn't email me, but like she saw me in the lobby or whatever and smiled and said, Hey, I heard you did great or something like that. And I'm like, fuck, this is amazing. And you were, were you, were you just, a, were you just an, just a salesperson? Just a salesperson. Just an account executive. Just a salesperson. Out there hawking, hawking, hawking yeah. deals. Yeah. Yeah. And so and more important, you know what the biggest thing about it was though? Give it to me. I felt like looking back on it, what I'm most proud of is I feel like in a tiny way, I added to the culture of the company Yeah. that I was mm, able to demonstrate that, that 
The mm. company was the kind of place where you could get up and make fun of the executives mm. and make everybody in the room happy and make the company a more fun place to work. So pause. Let's just rewind on that. So Paul, in front of how many people? 500 people? Some five, six, something, something when like that. Yeah. At the time, running the organization from a sales perspective, yep. at the time, Yahoo, the only biggest player in the space. Pre-Google. She ran the thing, was the media darling, the, just the, the person. So Paul's up doing comedy. And in the comedy, in your skit, you made fun of Wenda. I did make fun of Wenda. I made, made fun of Greg Coleman. And just Greg or well, Greg and like, Wenda? No, I, Wenda afterwards said, why did you make fun of me? And I, I should have said this from the stage because we would have gotten a huge laugh. But I was like, I'd make fun of Wenda, but I'm petrified. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. But yes. Greg, you could make fun of. He just wants to be mentioned. Yeah. He just wanted to be That's a part right. of it. Greg was like, he's That's just right. make me part of it, you know? And so like, I made fun of some people in the crowd too. I made yeah. fun of, gosh, Brian Gray and probably John Zeman yeah. and Sean Simon. Yeah and yeah. uh, a few other folks and it was fun to just yeah. that's when you can make you bring the audience into it the oh. show is about the company the show is about the people uh, no but what i was gonna say was taking that stand actually making fun of these people was the thing where people were like this is unbelievable this is unbelievable because at the time these people had so much power, not only in terms of the business that they were running, but the people who did have options that were worth something. Mm. If you did say something to these people, that could actually be like a very big mistake in your life. Yeah. I suppose I felt like I had nothing to lose. I, I don't know. It was just really, it was one of those, it was a lightning in a bottle night. It was really fun. So w let me just go in here for just a little bit more, because this is super interesting to mm -hmm. me. Did you prepare for this skit? Did you write down what your obviously? Yeah, you of did. course. We you had slides. We had slides. We had Ricky Montalvo help me with this. Oh. What's up, Rick? What's up, buddy? We made joke. There's like those business books, Chicken Soup for the Soul, yeah. and I, th I think that we made up mock covers to books that played off of the most popular business books of the time. So I remember that Greg Col there, there was a, a book called What Color Is My Parachute. And I did one for Greg. It was What Color Are My Dockers <laughs> by Greg Coleman. Because <laughs> he would always wear khakis. <laughs> yeah. He wore these horrible khakis. Yeah. <laughs> you know, usually, I mean, they cost $22 yeah. at Kohl's. He's worth millions yeah. of dollars. Hundreds of yeah. millions. <laughs> so then another yeah. one was for Brian Gray was uh, What They Didn't Teach Me at Harvard Business School Because I Didn't Get In by Brian Gray. <laughs> one made fun of. Sean Simon, I just I can't remember. I, something about him being obnoxious or something. So okay, yeah. Right. So so we, yeah. Of course we prepared. I it was a, yeah. I prepare. I don't just get up there and start making fun of people. Well, I guess my point was, were you thinking of the people that you were going to target? Yes. Like it was conscious that you were going to actually target Greg on something, not Wenda, because I was afraid. Yeah. Like, did, did you go back and forth in your mind the night before or when you were preparing? Should I actually, did you have jokes prepared for Wenda that you didn't use? Well, I think the obvious joke for Wenda was her haircut. She had that bob. <laughs> and I think I might've said something about her bob. <laughs> I think I had a, I think I had, I think I told, a, I think I wrote a joke. I'm not sure if I told it. I said, what's the difference between Wenda's haircut and Robert Kennedy? And one was, 
One is a dead Robert, and the other one is a died Bob. I told what? that one, though. I don't think you did. You just did. Well, you just did. So, <laughs> Hello, so Yahoo Hopefully, Hopefully, <laughs> Wenda's listening to I this. I love you, Wenda. Hopefully, Wenda's one of the three people. So, okay, let me back up here. You get up in front of the company that you're working for. Mm-hmm. She sees something in you. She's like, hey, we want you to do a comedy skip. Yeah. How did you know, walk me back to when, like, how, how does someone know that they're a quote unquote comedian? How do, like, what, how, how does that happen? That's a good question because I remember I, the, the way I came to comedy was I went to business school because I wanted to make more money mm-hmm. and I was raising money in my college at the time. And I was like, okay, this whole working in higher education thing is not going to result in the kind of financial lifestyle that I want to lead. And it wasn't really what I the work wasn't what I wanted to do long-term either. So I went to business school because I wanted to make, make more money and I didn't know what kind of work I wanted to do. I, I was asked to host a talent show at business school and I basically I just made fun of my friends, my classmates for 20 minutes. And the laughs I got were like that wave of laughter mm-hmm. in an auditorium. It's, it, it is the... It is a drug. Mm. It is a fix of a drug. And it's not just, oh, these people approve of me. It's I understand them and they understand me. Mm. And it was the same thing that happened at Yahoo. It's I'm in, I am in a place where I belong. Mm-hmm. I am in a place where I am contributing. I am in a place where I am appreciated. And by the way, all these things, why it matters to me is goes back to my psychological coding and all that kind of stuff and why... When I'm not in a place where I feel appreciated, when, when I'm in a place where I don't feel appreciated or when I'm in a place where I don't feel safe, that I am going to run away. But before we dive into that part of my psyche, yeah. um, oh, you know, the, the, the experience of doing comedy, I was like, oh, among all these very smart people at Dartmouth's business school, this is what separates me, that I am, mm. that I'm funny, that I have the courage to say things. But I think what people sometimes don't understand is like, when I'm making fun of people in the room, I'm making fun of the people that I love. I'm not going after people who I perceive as weak or bad. Mm-hmm. I'm telling my friends I love them in the same way that my brothers and sisters, my five brothers and sisters, made fun of each other at the mm-hmm. dinner table. Now, sometimes it was, sometimes you go for an easy dig at the dinner table because you wanted to settle a score. Mm-hmm. But like in these environments, I'm, I'm, I think I'm trying to contribute to the net love and celebration of each person's quirks. And so, and I think that's why those, I think that's why that worked that night at, at Yahoo. And so, but I got into the, the question was, when can you, when you describe yourself as a comedian? So I said, okay, well, I want to be a comedian, but I had borrowed $80,000 to get my MBA. And that was in 1997. So I had to go to work and I went to work in the digital media business. Thank God I found out about a job at launch.com. But all that time, I knew I wanted to do stand-up comedy. And then a f- my neighbor, shortly after 9-11, said, look, life is short. And if this is something you want to do, you live in Los Angeles. There's comedy classes all the time. And there was one down the street. So I took a comedy class. And then I was working with a, a, a career coach slash therapist. And mm-hmm. I was like, when can I say that I'm a comedian? Mm. I remember specifically having that conversation. Mm-hmm. And as I see new comedians, now that I've been doing it for seven or eight years full time, I see new comedians come in and I see them struggling to become a comedian. And so I guess you're a comedian when you 
commit yourself to the craft. Yeah. And so as a kid, you grew up in an environment where really that, a lot of that, just a lot of that was part of just the dynamic in the family, just jokes and fun and making fun and all lovingly, which is where you really honed the, because as a comedian, you have to have a certain speed. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a wit of return of a volley of uh, of joke or of words. Yeah, that's like the, there's the, the, these are two different things though. The in the family dinner, the Ollinger family dinner table was a very lively place. Six, well, eight big personalities, and we would often have guests there who would either come away thinking that was the crazy, that was the greatest thing ever, or they were scared to death and they would never come back. But there is that kind of banter that turns you, that, that makes you a person who is on his or her feet, depending upon which role you played at the dinner table. Not all siblings liked it equally or even thought about it equally. But then there's the craft of comedy is you take those innate skills or inclinations and you turn them into what works on stage in front of strangers. Mm -hmm. Because one of the mistakes people make early and one of the mistakes I certainly made or the assumptions I made was I can make a room full of Yahoo salespeople laugh. I can make a room full of tuck school classmates laugh. But walk into the improv in Riverside County, California and try to make a group of strangers laugh. And that's a whole different experience. Bill Burr says, I've heard him say that you get into comedy because you're the funny guy at the bar and then it takes you a decade, Brent, to become that person on stage mm -hmm. because you go from, you go from just hanging out, talking to your buddies, making them laugh because you're not thinking about anything to learning how to go up and just talk about what's on your mind on stage. And I'm still trying to get there. So talk about making a crowd that you don't know laugh fast forward, just getting off tour mm. with a fairly known band. Maybe some of us old guys know this. Yeah, know this well band. known among old people. Can we sing one of their one of their songs? <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to sing on podcast. Pod it's a copyright violation. The the song that I want to sing is Lady. That's not. That's actually not. That's not the. That's not I the think group. you can probably get away with it. Yeah. So I opened for Sticks and Collective Soul on the road uh, for eight shows, not nine months, but it for eight shows last June. Can I just pause? For yeah, a baby. That's badass. Like, like we're we're like normal dudes. I'm mm -hmm. sitting in your basement, just normal humans. Yeah. You're on the road with Sticks, yeah. a band that yeah. has put out classic after classic. Yeah. We got to talk about this a little bit. What do you want to know? Well, first I want to know. What, give me the, talk to me about the experience of mm -hmm. actually being on the stage. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then I want to know what was it like being on the bus? Uh, well, okay. So first of all, this all happened because of Ed Rowland, mm -hmm. the lead singer of Collective Soul. Yep. He, he and I are friends. Our families are friends. We've spent uh, a lot of time vacationing together. And on one of the most recent vacations, we did a show in Park City. Utah, where I did some jokes in front of his acoustic set and it went well. And he asked me to open for three shows he was doing in March at the Roxy here in Atlanta. So these were the first shows they did post COVID at the Roxy. So I opened for them for three shows and it went well. And their manager is also Sticks manager, Charlie Brusco. And he thought it'd be a good idea for me to come out on the road with Sticks and Collective Soul. And so that's how it happened. And we, and it's a whole different experience. When you walk out and first of all, the crowd isn't expecting comedy. Yeah. They're there to see, they're there to see music. Yeah. Bands that they really love. Mm -hmm. 
right? And so this is an older crowd. So how big are these crowds, by the way? Well, okay. So the venues are, I think they probably, the, the anywhere from three to 7,000 mm -hmm. people at these mm -hmm. venues. But when I go on stage, there's anywhere from 400 to 2,000 people yeah. in the arena. Mm -hmm. So the job of the opener is to warm up the crowd, mm -hmm. right? And so, and, and by definition, the crowd is not warm yet. They're not expecting me. They're not even in their seats. They're getting their beers. They're getting, they're finding their seats. They're going to the bathroom, whatever. And so the, the idea of me going up is to indicate to the crowd, come on, the show's starting. Mm -hmm. Come on in. Let's get this thing going. And, they're, and it's a music venue. It's a music event. It's not a comedy event. It is an interesting position to be in. And it was one that I got used to as the eight date, as the date one turned into date three to date eight. And it was cool. It was really cool. It, it, it was a challenge. It was a thrill. I you know, had to change my material around. I had to make it about them. And that's the thing, right? And this is the common thread between those shows at Talk and the shows at Yahoo. The shows were about the people in the crowd mm -hmm. as opposed to being about me and about my material. And the more I could do that with the Sticks and Collective Soul crowd, the, more, the, the better the shows went. In the end, I wasn't doing 15 minutes about the Grand Illusion, Sticks smash album from 1976 mm -hmm. or whatever. But it was 77, I think it was July 7th, 1977, as they pointed out. But the more you can make it about the people in the audience, the more they're going to walk away feeling like they saw something special. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when Ed said, listen, man, why don't you come with me and open up for me in Atlanta? Mm -hmm. And then the national thing happened. Were you like, were you like, this is unbelievable? Or were you, you know what? This is where I should be. I think that I felt like I can do this. Mm -hmm. I felt like I can do it. My my reaction was more like, I want to do a good job for the show. Yeah. I want Ed to be happy that he asked me. Mm. I want the crowd to feel like I made the show better. Mm. I want the band to feel like, our sh like this was better because Paul was a part of it. Because it's about the show yeah. and... The more I, if I were to try to make it about me, the the worse it would be. Yeah. So right. for me, I want it to be like, and and that's one of the things that mm. I'm still working on as a performer. How do you make it? A, how do you? How can you be yourself? Coming back to that important thing, how can you be yourself and serve the show without pandering to the crowd? I I know there's things I could have talked about on the road that would have elicited a more emotional reaction from the crowd, mm. but they wouldn't have been sincere and it wouldn't have been me being myself. So you really think about serving the show, really the show as the muse. So you're serving the show in that form. And the question really is, is well, where you are now in the craft is how do I continue to get better at actually serving the show over and over versus serving Paul. Well, right now, I think there's I think there's a difference when people are paying to come see you, which is happening to a small degree, a, a bigger degree, but it's still pretty small degree is relative to well known performers. When people are paying to come see you, that's the show. They're coming to hear your point of view mm -hmm. because for some reason or somehow you are serving them because you are as a comedian helping them feel understood 
you're helping them understand the way that the way they see the world makes sense. Mm. The way they the way they interrelate with their spouse makes sense. Mm. Or at least there's other people yeah. who face the same challenges in the way they interact with their kids, their spouse, yeah. their parents, the world in general, money, mm-hmm. all these topics. Yep. And so your point of view serves the crowd because it makes them feel appreciated or understood. That's how you serve the crowd. Now, when I'm opening for Sticks or Collective Soul, they didn't pay to come here. That doesn't mean that I can't help them, that I can't share that with them. Mm -hmm. But it means that I have to earn that. Yeah. And that's the job of any comedian. If, If you go to a showcase show and there's eight comics on the show, you have a 10 minute spot you've got to you have to somehow bring them into the what i have to say matters and it might be relevant to you and the way you do that is how well you do that is the craft that that's what takes a decade to figure out so what's the ultimate goal well as it pertains to the craft as it pertains to the craft i think is just to continue to get better I, i think it is the continual pursuit of learning how to do this at a higher level. And I've been writing a little bit about this also. And I think the thing I understand now that I didn't understand 10 years ago or when I started doing comedy is that the only thing you can, the only thing you really get out of doing it full time is the answer to the question, what would happen if I gave it my all? Mm. That's all you get. Now, you might get some degree of fame. And I and when I say fame, from having two followers on social media to having two million people in the world know who you are. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you know that the, the needle might move to the right on that metric, and it will eventually. You might make some money. You might be able to earn a living. Let me just put it that way. When I say you might be able to earn a living, the number of people who raise a family, or even just say that make more than. $100,000 a year mm-hmm. gross doing stand-up comedy is a tiny number of people. Mm-hmm. Tiny. And you might have seen somebody on late night or on Netflix or whatever five or six times. That doesn't mean anything in terms of their ability to yeah. make a living. So as it pertains to the guys and gals that we know who are the experts in the craft, and I think of people like Dave Chappelle, I think Chris Rock, I mm-hmm. think I think Richard Pryor. What is the- Those are all men, you sexist. Amy Poehler? Not a stand-up, <laughs> but okay, good effort, good effort. And she's legitimately funny. I'm yeah, like- she is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> we'll give you pretty funny, Amy Poehler. You get pretty funny. Hopefully, she's listening. She well, she's not in the same pantheon as the, as Richard Pryor. But there's anyway. Keep going. I don't mean to. Let's see. Oh wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh, I got one more. Kristen Wiig. Kristen Wiig. Again, not a stand up, but she's ridiculously funny. Oh my! Like I just off saw, the charts funny. Just saw the movie Bridesmaids. Masters of the craft. What differentiates them? from the guys who are and gals who are trying to support their families doing comedy what do you know about them or their childhood their upbringings how they got to where they got to i want to know what really separates them obviously other than being unbelievably hilarious well i all of these people have different kind of makeups 
Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle are well known for being, they were, Patton Oswalt said about Dave Chappelle that they, the two of them made their comedy debut the same night at the same club in Washington, D.C. I'm pretty sure it was in D.C. And, and, and Patton said basically that Chappelle was as good as 99% of guys that have been doing it for 10 years. His first night ever. That doesn't happen. That is not how it works. And Chris Rock also at 17 years old was already like people were like, who the hell is this guy? Mm -hmm. This guy is, you know, and once in a while you'll see somebody that just is so naturally good yeah. at it that you're just like, oh, why do I even bother? Mm -hmm. But compare that to like Bill Burr, say, or even J or Jim Gaffigan, who are people who are two guys that have been doing it for 30 years, 30 years plus. So they, let's say they started when they were 22 and they're now early mid fifties. So they've been doing it for 30 years, three decades. Mm -hmm. If you do something for three decades, mm -hmm. you're going to get better at it. Yeah. But when you watch Bill Burr from who Bill Burr is one of my favorites, be, I just think he's phenomenal. But if you watch his stuff from 15 years ago, it's not as good as it is today mm -hmm. because he's just developing as a performer and those thousands and thousands of reps, you develop an intuitive sense of how to appear on stage, how to exist on stage that, that, that can't be that, that everybody, that people who aren't Chappelle or Chris Rock can earn, but isn't there at the beginning necessarily. Mm -hmm. George Carlin was yeah. when he started was a nerdy, like suit and tie guy who dressed like the early Beatles. Mm -hmm. And then he evolved as the world changed. He evolved. He became George Carlin. He became the free thinker. He just, he was doing sort of straight comedy, like whatever that meant in 1959. And he changed and he said, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to be me. And then he became the George Carlin that we know and respect. Mm -hmm. All his specials aren't equally as good. All of Bill Burr's specials aren't equally as good. But I will, I'll, I will name drop because I did open, I hosted for Bill Burr at the Ontario Improv back in 2005 or something. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting in the green room one night, the feature act, who I can't remember who it was, but it was like me and Bill Burr and the feature act and uh, I don't maybe somebody else. And we're talking about what, what do you want to do? Tell my goals, as we were talking about just a second ago. He's like, and Bill says, I want to be a great comedian. And I said, you are a great comedian. He's like, no, I want to be one of the great comedians. And I was like, oh man, that is so intimidating to mm -hmm. me because here's this guy that is light years ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And yet he's good, isn't good enough. Mm -hmm. Great isn't good enough. Mm -hmm. One of the greats was his goal. And I think he's gotten there. He wouldn't say it necessarily, but selling out Royal Albert Hall twice in an evening, filming your Netflix special there is a pretty good indication that you're in rarefied air. How does one continue to hone the craft when it's as, when it means as much to them as it does to you? What is the, what's, what are the things people often talk about? If you really enjoy the process, then that's what really matters. Yeah. The process sucks. I'll tell you. What is it? The pro well, the process, well, well, um, the process is being okay with not being as good as you want to, and still doing it and still going out there and eating it and 
or worse, just continuing to do the stuff that you know works, but not growing. And I was going to make a joke and say the secret is to do as many Zoom shows as you possibly can, because that's what we've been. That The, the quarantine in the last 15 months or whatever, is, it's just everybody had different challenges to their careers, but like comedy basically shut down. Yeah. Except in Florida where they're shoving 300 people in a room and saying, good luck. But look, you think you're doing great. There's all this momentum. I had a lot of momentum at the end of 2019 and then it just stopped. And so the process now is regrouping and getting back out there mm -hmm. and trying to get back to where I was a year and a half ago. Yeah. And some things that were going stopped going some things that weren't going have arrived and so you just have to continue to push forward and creatively i've got to continue to write new material i've got to continue to perform new material i've got to i've got to just keep pushing it and pushing it because it like the beast must be fed yeah and the only way to feed it is by continuing to go out and try new stuff and be willing to fail and for somebody that that has been for so many years adhered to the way we measure success, starting with grades then with some degree of athletic accomplishment or participation anyway, and then with money and promotions and stuff like that. This is a very nonlinear way to make a living and try to, to ask yourself, well, how do I know I'm doing well? You don't get a report card. Yeah. You just have to continue to do it and, and like it's it is an it is a non-traditional way and you've got to just be like i enjoying the process the outcomes are incidental to doing the work well i have to imagine being in front of three to seven thousand people touring with sticks is okay i've i'm moving up george and wheezy yeah. a hair a bit yeah, i mean you know it's weird gotta though. Be. well it's nice that I, it's nice that i was that people had confidence to put me in that situation yeah. I feel as if I would do it differently than I did, but that's what happens when you learn, yeah. you figure out what you did right, you figure out what you did wrong. But being in front of 5,000 people and doing okay is is one thing. Being in front of five people and just knocking their socks off is every bit as, it, it's just a different kind of mm. feeling. Like in some ways it's more challenging. Mm -hmm. I, I think of comedy as like a track meet, like a decathlon, right? There's all these different events you have to have the skills to run the marathon, to yeah. do the hundred yard dash, yeah. throw the javelin, shot put. Like they're all different the nuances that that allow you to succeed in each of those different events. And you have to have those skills because right. you'll eventually be put in all those different positions and have to figure your way out. So what's next? What's on the what is next on the schedule from a comedy perspective? Well, the, um, you know, I think summer's been summer summer's a little slow and really the world is just it's still reopening slowly yeah. some clubs still aren't open at, most clubs aren't open at full capacity yet meaning they're open but maybe they're not doing as many shows so it's really just trying to get the next big chunks of material out there and keep pushing trying to try out that material mm -hmm. try to get some weekends here or there at some clubs, have some new people see me. I am, the process, like I said, the process is grind. But it's all about the process because yeah. there's no arriving. Mm -hmm. There's no quarterly commission checks that said you did a good job. Mm -hmm. There's just... No, it's not an option. Like Keep moving forward. Like you don't get options at each club? They're not like... <laughs> 
You don't like get the, stock you options. You don't get stock options at every club. No. So so I've heard of this podcast, Crazy Money. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's massive. Uh, yeah. So no, let's talk a little bit about Crazy Money because it's actually an amazing subject. Fascinating, personally. The subject of money, mm. of mm. cashish. Because we all struggle with it and we all have our own isms. And we all grew up a different way with money. So I just would like to ask what you have learned. You've done this for a while now. This has mm. been going for years. It's been going about the, the podcast. I've been working on it for about two and over two and a half years. Now. And, yeah, I remember. I actually remember the first. I remember when you launched it. And you have interviewed some very interesting people about the subject of money. And I'm just curious some of your biggest takeaways of the subject of money and not only your takeaways, what was the thing that pulled you that was money related to do this show? What, what was it? The way I came to the topic of money was that I grew up obsessed with money, fetishizing money. My parents uh, provided everything we needed, but there was an undercurrent of financial stress in our house. The irony of my dad was a wonderful man, very frugal. And the irony is that he died with a relatively meaningful amount of money in his bank account because he was so frugal and he lived so long and that the time value of money, blah, blah, blah. But I think our attitudes toward money are probably baked by the time we're 13 or 14 yeah. based on what we observe in our home. And what I observed was it felt as if we didn't have enough money, although we did. Never missed a meal. My parents paid for all our schools through college. And, you know, we were expected to work jobs as teenagers. We were expected to contribute small amounts of tuition to our college tuition. Dad suffered no fools. He paid, he was like, I'm not paying your fraternity dues. You want to drink beer on the weekend, that's on you. Mm. All that kind of stuff. So I think he was an extraordinarily reasonable man. And in retrospect, I can't imagine that my kids are actually better off than I was in terms of coming at the world and the world of money with a balanced approach. And I talk to a lot of people about this all the time, people who are raising kids in an affluent situation. Mm -hmm. How are we going to raise kids who are aware and empathetic and motivated mm -hmm. and ambitious? Not ambitious for money necessarily, but ambitious to accomplish the things they want to accomplish yep. in life because there's nothing they don't have. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are things they don't have. And, and ironically, they see other kids that are flying private and going to crazy places. Yeah. And it's insane. But it's real. It's real. Just because it's so rarefied doesn't mean... And what does that do to kids, by the way? Well... Who are flying private as kids. And I, I don't, listen, I don't know what's it do to kids who... Would, oh, I am, but I don't... I think it's all about the parents, man. I think mm -hmm. it's about how the parents condition them and what example they present to them. There's great parents who fly private. There's shitty parents who fly private. Yeah. There's great parents who can't afford... A, an economy class ticket and yep. there's shitty parents who can't afford an economy class ticket. I don't think, I don't think money and ethics go hand in hand mm -hmm. either direction. And so anyway, long, long way. So I grew up with that attitude. I was very ambitious. I made money at Facebook and I quit my job at 42 years old for a variety of reasons, but including the fact that I didn't really feel like I could be myself at that company. But is that right? Yeah, but mostly because I, f I looked at my numbers and was like, why do, why, why do I even want to work? Because the pressure was so big. No, it had nothing to do with the pressure. Numbers it, as in like revenue numbers? No, the numbers like I've uh, my stock is worth this much money. Got why it, right? like yeah. why am I putting work. up with this bullshit? Sure. 
when I don't have to work. Yeah, got it. And that was that's one of yeah, many totally. traps that people who haven't had money before will fall into. Mm-hmm. And it's not until you quit and you're and you've gotten over the euphoria of not working and yeah. not feeling a quota for the first time in 15 years yeah. or whatever it is, and you're not stressed about the office politics and you're not worried about catching a 6 a.m. flight to wherever your client needs you tomorrow. You do that for six months and it's awesome. And then one morning you wake up and you turn on your computer and you're like, you have no mail. Yeah. You go to LinkedIn and it says nobody's looked at your profile in 90 days. Mm-hmm. And while that is a glitch for a second, a split second, you actually believe that you're dead. Yeah. Because you don't know where you fit in the world anymore. Right. And work provides mm. you. Mm. You don't know this before you quit, but work provides you mm. a network. It provides you with the need to be there. Yep. It provides you with a purpose, whether you like that purpose or not. Mm-hmm. And it provides you with your paycheck, whether you need it or whether you don't, is a biweekly reminder that you matter, mm-hmm. that you're needed somewhere, mm-hmm. that your that hours of your day have value. Mm-hmm. And when that disappears, this might be obvious to some people, but it wasn't obvious to me. Mm-hmm. When that disappears, you start to ask yourself, well, where do I fit in the world? Yeah. Who am I? And and it's highly disconcerting. What did that look like for you? It looked like, well, it wasn't like a disaster. I didn't wake up snorting heroin or anything, but it was like... I would have been. <laughs> no. I think at a certain point, you're like, oh, wait a minute. First of all, it's like, oh, my God, I made a huge mistake yeah. leaving. And then, I like, were you were you in the mindset of, I want to go back? Was there like, a, I want to go back? No, well, <clears throat> no. But when you sort of close a lot of doors, right? And I'd wanted to be, I'd wanted to be a comedian for a long time. But I didn't have the guts when I left Facebook to say I want to go be a comedian again because I felt like I'd failed at it on some level. And I had moved back to Atlanta to be close to my parents, which I'll never regret because mm-hmm. I got to spend the last yeah. years of their lives as a meaningful part of their life. Totally. But I didn't have the guts to say I want to go be a comedian. I didn't know where to start because I was back here in Atlanta. I didn't know the people, whatever. But I didn't do it for three years. Mm-hmm. And so... I think my biggest mistake wasn't leaving Facebook. It was not having a plan as to do what when I left. You should always be going towards something, not away from yeah, something. Yeah. And so there were a lot of opportunities. I, I could have leveraged my position to Facebook to go work in higher levels at other places, but yeah. I, I didn't have a strong calling to stay in the industry, and I wasn't willing to acknowledge the desire to live a life as a creative person because the path was so unclear and so mm-hmm. uncertain. Mm-hmm. By the way, do you really believe you close doors, like doors close, like in the world? You said that earlier. You said, yeah, doors closed. What do you mean by that? What do you mean doors closed? Well, I, I think that I said earlier that the only thing you get when you pursue one path, pursue the path of comedy, is the answer to the question, what if I gave it my all? Yeah. Well, that's true no matter which path you, you pursue. And there is a degree of mutual exclusivity between those paths. And if I want the answer to the question, what would happen if I gave comedy my all? That's the answer that I get. Yeah. But I don't get the answer to what would it look like if I gave the corporate world my all? I left Facebook 10 years ago. I could certainly be the CEO of some big company right now. Mm-hmm. The number. You mean if you would have stayed? If I would have stayed. Yeah. If I would, I'm not saying I'd be the CEO of Facebook. I'm saying I'd, if that's what I want, if, if yeah. you want to be the CEO of a company, right. 
you're not going to get the answer to the question, what would my comedy career look like if yeah. I gave it 10 years of my life? Or whatever, replace comedy with whatever that, that thing is. Yeah. And use the 10,000 hour rule, right? The Malcolm yeah. Gladwell, 10,000 10, hours is five years of full-time work. Mm -hmm. And so you're not even going to get an inkling as to how good you could be until you've put in five years of work. Yeah. At anything. And the difference is I was already 15 years into my my technology world career. Yeah. And so who knows what that could have been. But I, I also think that we're probably going to live in... You, the, the actuarial tables would tell us that we're going to live until we're about 80 right mm -hmm. now. So let's just say that you or I have about 15 to 18 years of work where you can really dig in and be good at something. Mm -hmm. I, I think at a certain point, people that live in a corporate world... There's only so long you can do that. Yep. And at a certain point, you're going to look for another way to live your life. Whether that means you're going to be a board member, you're going to be an individual investor, you're going to focus on philanthropy. I believe that most people who live through the grinder of corporate America have maybe 25 to 30 years doing that. Total. Total. Meaning, meaning when, you're, when you get to in the vicinity of 50 corporate, it's very hard to do. Well, it, it's living your life as an, as a high-level executive yeah. is not a super sustainable way to live. I say none of us came out of the womb begging to be a corporate executive. I, well, yeah, I, I, I just think logistically. I'm making no moral judgments uh -huh. whatsoever. I got it. I just think it's a really hard way to live yeah. and that... At a certain point, you're doing it either out of, you're doing it because you got to pay your bills. Yep. And when you get to the point, if you've been fortunate that you have the option to do something else, a lot of people are going to be like, I got to figure out a way that I can be me mm -hmm. without trashing my soul and my yeah. physical health yeah. and all these things that go along. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's unethical at all. I'm by no means am I saying that. I'm just saying it's really hard to sustain mm -hmm. and that a lot of us, and I actually, speaking of crazy money, I talked to the Laura Carstensen, who's the director of Stanford's Longevity Center. Mm. Very interesting woman. She's the structure of our lives. You go to college till you're 22, maybe a professional degree, 25, 26, 32, depending upon if you're a lawyer or a surgeon. And then you're supposed to work for the next 40 years and then retire and die. That's these the structure of the way we learn and work hasn't adjusted to our life expectancy. Yeah. And I think that what we're seeing, it, a lot of people burning out in their 40s and 50s and saying, I want to work hard. I want to do things that are meaningful, but it's got to be on terms that are consistent with my physical and mental well-being. Right. I think that's, I, I, I think that's highly logical that that happens. And, and coming back to trying to circle back to the point, you can't get the answer to both questions. What would happen if I gave the corporate world my all? And or what would happen if I gave the world of cooking or comedy or guitar playing my all? Not simultaneously anyway. You can get them consecutively, but not simultaneously. What have you learned from these experts about that question? In the sense of we, it's I'm like, who wasn't upset? Maybe there were people. Like, who wasn't obsessed with money as a kid? I and mean, I see my kids, and it's, yeah, it's like they, yeah, they want money. They want money to buy I think stuff. It's, I think it's based on an individual. I, I think it's, I know people that grew up in very affluent environments that are not obsessed with money. Uh -huh. 
some of my favorite people in the world, and I would not name them because it would embarrass them. Yeah. And so what's the psychology? I think it's, I don't know. I can see differences in my children. Yeah. I can see it, it's different kids process sugar differently. I and I think that doesn't mean one kid is better or worse than the other. You, yeah. you just go, okay, this kid's responding to stimuli in different ways. And I can see that, I, I don't know. There's two different questions here. What, who wasn't obsessed with money? I'd say my siblings, some of my siblings weren't obsessed with money mm -hmm. at all. They came from the same household. They weren't as obsessed with getting A's and everything. They weren't as obsessed in getting the offices that I wanted to get to prove myself. And that might be because I was younger and I wanted to be seen. Yep. I wanted to prove myself because I, I, as number five, I was buried somewhere in the back yep. in the pack. Yep. And uh, I, I don't know. Everybody has different reasons why they're motivated to do different things. What did I learn from the masters of the craft and comedy and stuff? Well, Bill Burr, like, he started, he's been doing comedy for 30 years. And that if you do something for 30 years, you're going to get really good at it. Yeah. But that doesn't guarantee you any success. There's right. plenty of people that have been doing it as long as Bill has that don't have the body of work or the talent to point to. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to get those years back. Mm -hmm. They're not going to, they can't go back in time and say, in retrospect, I think I should have studied accounting. Yeah. But back to the money piece, because there is this belief that when you do have a significant amount of money, that all will be well in your life. Not true. And in your family. Not true. And in your psyche. Not true. And it is widely believed that if I hit the jackpot and tomorrow I have a hundred million dollars in my bank account, that the doves will be flying around me yeah. and everybody is singing hallelujah. <laughs> well, I don't have a hundred million dollars. Well, I mean, but I got enough. I, and, and one of the things that I have to keep myself from wondering is Boy, wouldn't it be great to have a hundred million dollars? The, the right. we, when we flew uh, to Boise last week yep. and got derailed through, and there was a mechanical failure on Delta. It's hard to not think, gee, wouldn't it have been easier just to fly our own plane out here? But that's a trap, and it, it's a trap at Why? every. It's a trap at every level. Why? We humans are programmed to only look at people with more and say, "Wouldn't my life be better if I had more?" Mm -hmm. And it, it, you, if you look at the studies, people that make $50,000 think they need $100,000 to be comfortable. People who make 100 think it's 200 and the numbers, it just goes up and up. And it's not, and it doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. And there is all, with the exception of one person in the world, there is always somebody with more. Yeah. And once you have enough money, you start looking for other things in your life that aren't perfect either. And maybe this whole thing around, I have money, now I want attention. Mm-hmm. Except that I wanted attention before I had money. So, so who knows? No, but I think that we, are, are, we have evolved to survive. We have evolved. And part of that survival is by looking at the tribe next to us and saying, why do they have more than we do? I'm going to go get some of that. It's a, you know, there's a negativity bias that keeps us alive that says, I hear a rustling in the bushes. It must be a tiger. Mm. When you know, and, and that does all kinds of things to us. But there are so many things around money that, and this comes to the reason I started the podcast, which I didn't really answer the question earlier, is because I made a lot of money and it didn't make me feel like I thought it was going to make me yeah. feel. I thought I was going to, I thought those doves were going to fly around <laughs> and they didn't. It was great at first. And yeah. then you go and you buy a big house 
And then after you have the house for a while, you're like, boy, there sure are a lot of light bulbs to change around mm -hmm. here. And you start to go, boy, there's, I bought a big house because I was never alone as a kid. I wanted some privacy as a kid because there was eight of us in a 2,200 square foot house. Yeah. So you buy a 6,500 square foot house for four of you. Yeah. Right. And there were eight people in three bathrooms when I grew up. And today there's four people in eight bathrooms. And you're like, I could probably live with, without that eighth bathroom. Uh -huh. So you, the fallacy of wealth starts to demonstrate itself. And yet you can never convince somebody who doesn't have a lot of money that more money won't make them happy. Right. You can't convince them of that. But as my friend and, and guest on Crazy Money, Brad Klontz, who's a, who's a therapist who works, a psychologist who works with billionaires, says when somebody who has a lot of money looks in the mirror and doesn't feel good about what they see. They can't blame it on the fact that they don't have enough. And so that's mm. a lesson wow. that only, call it the 1%, right. get to actually internalize, that the rest of the world will never understand, yeah. is that is that money won't fix you. Yeah. And we always believe it will because right. it's always easy to blame the lack of something. Yeah. And I call it the Jerry Maguire effect yeah. because he looks at Renee Zellweger and says, yeah, you totally. completely, and yeah. guess what? She doesn't. Yeah. And he's going to find out, and it's going to be terrible. That's why there was no Jerry Maguire too. I know it was a great movie, though. Right, but Love she's that. not going to fix him. He's uh, broke. He does. He's. It's not what he's missing. I know, but it's he's missing. He's missing a sense of self regard. He's missing a sense of self confidence. He's missing us. He's trying to get it, but it's not going to be fulfilled through her. I know it. So nor the money. That, money's but money's the same way that, that he like, didn't have. What you need is enough. And that, and this is again high or low. People like everybody. Most of, of America is broke. Like they couldn't. Like like the numbers are like sixty five yeah. percent of Americans couldn't come up with four hundred dollars yep. for an emergency. Yep. And yet, what they they don't dream of financial solvency. They dream of being rich. Right. They want a Porsche. No, you don't. Right. You want to be not broke. Right. That's what you want. Right. It, that that episode was actually fascinating with the Brad Klontz. Brad Klontz. Yeah. What else did, like, when, because he obviously works with only billionaires or people who have a tremendous amount of money, and he, I would assume, is going into issues from childhood that drove these people to make this amount of money. That's, well, it, Brad has a thing called money scripts. Mm -hmm. And so there's four different money scripts. And, and basically you answer some questions and it, it helps to begin to describe your relationship with money. Yep. I'm afraid of it. I want to get rid of it. But there's, there's people and, and there, there's people who, when they get money, the first thing they want is just to get rid of it. Yep. There's people who want to hoard it. There's people that want to use it to fix other people, blah, blah, blah. There's all these money scripts and it all has to do with how we were raised. Mm. And that's what Brad looks into. Yeah. Did you talk to him at all about why he does what he does? Yeah, he talks about it very openly that he had his own money scripts that came from generations of his family losing money. And then he had this experience of day trading during the dot-com bubble and he had made some money and then he blew it all. And, and before he started his next career, he wanted to understand the psychology behind his relationship to money. And that's yeah. when he started studying the, the topic. Got it. So, so fast forward now, you're uh, 115 episodes in, I think you said? Correct. And you've learned a tremendous amount of money. When does crazy money go on the road? Will there be like a road show? Will there yeah. be like a live show? Yeah. What's the, what's That's the, funny. What's I think the, I talk about, the, I, so I'm doing three comedy shows at Capital City Country Club 
next month in August, right here down the street. And one of the things I could see doing is doing like a live version of Crazy Money at clubs and uh, country clubs would be just an easy place, built-in membership, built-in sales and predisposed to be interested in the to- in this topic. So I've thought about that, but I was saying to a friend today, like I, my biggest fear about having a, like an ask me anything session on Twitter or is, is that the only people that are going to show up or like my kids and my mother-in-law. <laughs> so the, the good news is I that know. the good news with the, uh, we've sold out three shows for comedy at the country club, but I think doing a live version of Crazy Money could be really interesting too. Yeah. The question would be who would I interview and who would be interesting enough to both sell tickets or drive ticket sales and actually have something that people would be interested in hearing. Well, but the subject of money is you can't not, you know, who yeah. doesn't want to learn more about money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Paul, this has been a whole lot of fun. And before I let you go, we've talked a lot about your seed of greatness. Oh, I forgot about this whole we've thing. We've talked a lot about who it is that Paul Ollinger truly is Mm. because you were given this sort of ability to show up as your true self at the Yahoo sales conference, which opened up your life. How many years ago? 20, 20 years ago. Or no, less than 17, 18 18, years ago. Something like that. Yeah, Yeah. 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 So, so do you believe that you came into this life with a, a seed, with something that was uniquely yours in the, in the essence of comedy or in the way that you present it? Or how do you think about that? I, I think that I, boy, we've talked a lot about family and all this, but, and by the way, I, I can't not say this, but there's all this talk about privilege these days, male privilege, white mm-hmm. privilege. The number one privilege I've had in my life is being born to to parents who wanted me and stayed together for 55 years. Let's talk about the importance of family in the role of creating successful children. And so, so as you ask me that question, I'm like, well, what was I born with versus what developed because I had a safe environment in which to develop? And I I don't know that I'm trading places is one of my favorite movies (laughs) of all time. So, so nature versus nurture is always an interesting one, but I don't know. I think the thing that, I think the thing that really drives me right now is just the desire to tell the truth and to say things that other people won't say and to stay committed to my journey. I don't, I think all this comes from the, the fear I'm assuaging is that deathbed fear of not having given it my all. And I gave my all to, I've generally given my all to everything that I've done. I feel like I haven't held back. And so I feel, I, and, and I, what, what's my seed of greatness? How do you sum it up? I don't know. Maybe the willingness to see what's out there and get after it. Yeah. I don't know. Why don't you tell me? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm tell, I could tell you yours, actually. What is it? Your seat of greatness. What is it? Well, I think your seat of greatness is this unencumbered ability to speak the truth in situations that are maybe a bit scary to speak the truth in front of large groups of people when or when not it may be appropriate but you hold the line, (laughs) but you hold the line in speaking your truth wherever it is you show up in the world. And to me, that's as much of a seed as it is anything else because not many people do that. Yeah. Well, it's, I think that's, I think that comes at a cost. Like 
part of success in the corporate world is your ability to the opposite of that, <laughs> like your willingness to just shake your head and sort of, I wrote something down there, like, don't, don't mistake compliance with buy-in. And I think there's a lot of people right now who are just nodding their heads and not wanting to make waves. Yeah. And I think we're in a very dangerous time. I couldn't agree with you more. And I'll go back to one point you made was, and actually it may answer my question, which was your unique seed. Yeah, you do need an environment of safety and warmth and protection as a kid to actually speak your truth as an adult. Yeah, well, some of the, actually, some of the comedians, comedy, a lot of it comes out of trauma. Yeah, I know that. And a lot of the people that I work with come from some dicey backgrounds. Yep. And so I'm not sure exact. I'm sure maybe that's partially true what you say about having a safe environment allows you to say things you wouldn't say otherwise as an adult. But I'm also seeing people that are like, what the hell do I have to lose? Yeah. And I just mean in the sense of as kids, because what happens as kids is we're programmed between really the ages of two and seven or two and eight. And if you have, if you're in an, in an environment where the people you look up to are encouraging you or guiding you or, 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 or are doing that on their own, and that allows you to really show up as your truth, as who you are, I think it gives you the ability to do that as you become an adult. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do think that is the scenario. I absolutely agree there could be a scenario that it was so bad as a kid that you had nothing, you got nothing to lose in the world to show up really who you are. Yeah. In spite of or rebellious or whatever that may be. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I was raised strictly Catholic and there was a whole lot of this is what we believe. There wasn't a lot of room for dissent from that. And really, in the past, five or six years, I've really just pulled away from that. Yeah. And I've asked myself, you know, what do I believe? What do I really believe? Yeah. I'm old enough to decide that for myself. Mm -hmm. And it's not a formula that's presented in any book. And so it's really more of a process of discovering that and trying to push and say, what are the truths that I adhere to? What was, did something happen that, pushed you in that direction or was this part of the leaving and the uh, uh, uncovering who would, who maybe your identity because your identity was attached to, to the works for so long, like meaning, yeah. and I, I meaning what you just said in the sense of moving away from how you grew up. Yeah. I think I, the catalyst. And when we came back here to Atlanta from LA, I really tried to, and there's, you could dissect the psychology of coming home and buying a house on the street that I aspired to as a younger person. And, and, but going back to church was part of coming home and reestablishing, putting down roots and all this kind of stuff. And I went to church for a while and I was like, at a certain point I was like, because we had kids and it's time to pick a faith and all that kind of stuff. And I just found myself feeling very claustrophobic at church mm -hmm. and the child abuse. And it's not abuse, it's rape. The Catholic church child rape scandal had been going on for decades but I'd never really thought about it. I'd never really taken the time to really ask myself, what do I, 
do I believe? And then as you start, and, and then the Pope went to the funeral of Cardinal Law of Boston, who's the guy that took the fall. Remember the movie Spotlight with mm-hmm. Michael Keaton and all yeah. that? So oh, yeah. Law, that was about Cardinal Law and proving that he had knowledge that this has been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. And as as that movie is being produced, it's coming out that, oh, this is happening in all these dioceses all over the country and blah, blah, blah. And then the Pope goes to his funeral, legitimizes the, after giving him this like prestigious, after he leaves the diocese of Boston, he gets some appointment in Rome that is highly prestigious and he dies and the Pope goes to his funeral. Yeah. And that's where the dime dropped for me. And I'm like, wait a minute. And a priest that I loved said, well, he's the fall guy. And I'm like, the fall guy? He's And you realize that this is deeper and broader mm. and scarier mm. than anybody wanted to represent. And so you ask yourself, if this church is willing to lie about the rape of children, yeah. what isn't it willing to lie about? Yeah. And the answer is nothing, mm. not one thing. And you start pulling on that thread and you start to go, oh, come on. This yeah. whole thing that we've mm-hmm. been fed. Come on. Yeah. But, you know, that's got to be some pretty heavy duty stuff for a person that lived it, breathed it for, you know, 40-ish years of his yeah. life. Yeah. To say. Well, I wouldn't it- say. I mean, you know, through college in my early adulthood, I, was, I wasn't. I wasn't strongly adherent but it was part of the identity mm-hmm. and that's the thing it's the hardest thing and as you lose your parents and one of the things you start to have to identify for yourself is what do, what do i believe yeah. what is it that i want to teach yeah. my kids what do i want to spread in the world yeah and it's easier to take somebody else's package and say here's the rules this is what we do totally and there's a great degree of community that comes with being involved with a church that i don't want to undersell but for me personally i just it's I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna raise my kids to believe things that I don't believe. Yeah, it's courageous. It's not a matter of courage. It's a matter of just being honest. Yeah, yeah, showing them to how to live their own truth. Well, no, it's not weird. <laughs> it's no, that's no, that's how you categorize it as weird. It's not no, weird. I'm, just, it's, I'm it, saying it got it got real. No, it's not weird at all. It's actually that, but that's what it's about, in my opinion. It's about real. It's about getting real. It's about people speaking up and speaking their truth. And I think that's what this is about for me, quite honestly. Mm. This is what this show is about: is talking to people about the real stuff, about the stuff that they normally would not necessarily talk about. That's what the Awakened Dad's about. Right on. So any seeds of wisdom you want to leave this esteemed audience of two? First of all, don't undersell yourself. So that's my first thread, my first kernel of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And if there's more than, if there's two people that get something out of it, then it's worth doing. And just just like Bill Burr, the longer you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And do it for the right reasons. That's what I've, eight years of doing stand-up comedy this time, full time find something worth doing do it for the right reasons and keep doing it yep. no matter what your passion is no what no matter just keep doing it and you'll get better that doesn't mean the rewards will be anything but intrinsic but those are the rewards that actually make you happy and the world noticing you getting paid for it is incidental to the reasons you should be doing it mm-hmm. that doesn't mean if zero people listen for 10 years, you should keep doing it necessarily. <laughs> but, you know, you'll figure it out. You'll yeah. figure out what direction to take it. Yeah. Well, thanks for spending the time, man. Thank the, you for asking. I'm the, happy to be with you. This has been great. My pleasure. Mm-hmm.
Hey, thanks for being with us today and joining me in my mission to help 100 million children live out their greatest life. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the Awakened Dad podcast and share with your friends and follow us on Instagram at The Awakened Dad. If you like what you heard today, please make sure to listen to our other episodes and thank you for being with us.